ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast that Elton John does not want you to hear. <laughs> We're monkeys and playbills. That's Paul DeGurse. And that's Jillian Willems. We're here to talk about shows that ran for 100 performances or fewer from opening to closing, not counting previews on Broadway. We're here to dissect what happened, why did they not run for more than 100 performances, and see if we can figure out exactly that. <laughs> this is investigative. This is this is an, this investigative, is an investigative podcast. Podcast. And this week we're discussing 2006's mega flop, Elton John and Bernie Toppin's Lestat. Before we tear into this one yes. or bite into it, mm. <laughs> we should probably mention that technically we're not trying to dunk on this production, no. this business, any of these fine folks who did all the all the work. Quite the opposite. Putting up a show is hard. It's hard work. It takes a lot of love and a lot of creativity. Rather, we're trying to dissect the possible reasons that it wasn't as successful as it could have been in hopes of celebrating the work that was done on it anyways. Exactly. So yeah, Lestat the Musical. <laughs> It ran at the Palace Theatre. Fantastic. Previews began March 25th, 2006. Yep. It opened on April 25th, 2006. And closed May 28th, 2006, after 33 previews and 39 performances. Oh, that is... That's brutal. You I hate think to, that's you hate the to fewest performances that we've yep. looked at so far. And this was a really... Unlike, I think, the other two that we've had a chance to look at in this podcast so far, this is a fairly high-profile flop. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of hype surrounding this. I kind of remember this was coming out when I was just starting to wrap my head around Broadway and being a fan of musical theater. I actually have a memory of finding the trailer for Lestat on, <gasps> the, um, on the internet. How did it make you feel? It made me feel so excited. I didn't know that musicals could have trailers. <laughs> And I was like, oh, they made a vampire musical. That is true, because 2006 was sort of the, I mean, around the first time that YouTube became a thing for me. Exactly. I'm sure it was active before that, but I didn't really start using it as a tool until around that time. Yeah. So, let's talk about uh, what this show's about, Jill. Yeah. So, it's based on... The novels by Anne Rice. Yes. Specifically, it's based on two of them together, I think. That's my understanding. Uh, one of them being Interview with the Vampire. Yep. And then the other one being... The Vampire Lestat? I think so. Or That's, something like... My understanding is it's a mix of Interview with a Vampire and the Vampire Lestat with a little bit of Queen of the Damned? The Vampire Chronicles. They just call it the Vampire Chronicles. Right. By Anne Rice. So I right. think that means so that they can maybe pull from many different books without saying yeah. here are the specific books of hers that we've pulled from totally so what's this uh what's this show about so i found a synopsis on stage agent because I'm, there wasn't one on wikipedia <laughs> i'm surprised someone was brave enough to try to provide a synopsis for this well, show and here's the one that that we have okay lestat is the story of a man who escapes the tyranny of his oppressive family only to have his life taken from him by the vampire magnus mm -hmm. so far now, so good <laughs> Now, a vampire himself, Lestat is thrust into the seductive and sensual world of immortality. 
However, Lestat struggles to reconcile his innate sense of good with his primal need to exist. Hmm. Yes, but what's it about? What yes. happens? <laughs> but what happens? And that's actually a big question for me mm-hmm. that, that came up throughout my, yep. um, I was going to call it my ingestion of this material. <laughs> but So that's the synopsis. Yeah. That's accurate. Can I can I try to provide I a would, synopsis? Yes. Um, based on this watch. Yeah, I love this game. Yeah, right. Um, Lestat is about a man who becomes a vampire, and then makes other people vampires, and wanders around, and is sad because no one loves him, and he feels except weird his about mom. Me. His mom really. His loves mom really him. loves him, and he really loves his mom. And then he's sad about living forever, but then at the end, he's happy about it because yeah. he's a rock star. And you can't go on a musical journey without some sort of change. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> musical rock um, star. So, before we delve into the who, what, where, when, etc. Mm-hmm. of this show, we should probably provide a little bit of context on, on the main creative forces for this show. Which is to say, Anne Rice and Elton John and Bernie Taupin. Mm-hmm. Going into this, neither of us had ever read an Anne Rice book. Correct. I understand you have. I actually only got about a third oh, of no. the way into Interview with the Vampire. <laughs> Why is that? Um, because I could kind of figure out how it was going to end. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I didn't feel like the language that she was using would some suddenly shift in the middle. Like I felt reading right. a third of it gave me enough of an idea so what of your, what she was all about. What's your impression? What's um, Anne Rice all about? Like I, I can, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, or go, go ahead. Go no, ahead. you can, if you want to get more specific. I was going to say what my yeah. impression is of Anne Rice vampire novels is that they're flowery. They're, if they're anything approaching horror, they're a very gothic version of horror. Yes. That is very much romantic and romanticized. And the vampires are angsty as they eat people. Yes. So I, as a person who doesn't consume fantasy in any way, mm. shape or form, it took me a little while to really get into it and to like buy this world that we were in however what made it easier is as we've discussed we love history yep and the scene that she set from the beginning Mm -hmm. you know it was new orleans in the late 1700s and new orleans is where Anne rice is from initially as well which is kind of interesting right so that's why there's such a focus on new orleans in these stories yeah and the picture that she painted was very clear and um exciting for me to watch and so er, wow for you to read. It was exciting for me to read. So I don't think I'll finish the book. Fair. I don't need to. Yep. But I don't regret the time that I took to start reading it, if that makes sense. So that's Anne Rice. <laughs> totally. Thank you. That that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The other things I know about Anne Rice after a quick a quick read is that she um the Vampire Chronicles made her super famous. Mm-hmm. Um she's had kind of a complicated relationship with them in that she um, ended up embracing Catholicism for a while and um, being like, I don't like these books. These are, uh, these are bad now. I don't, because um, they deal with undead and demons mm. and all sorts of stuff. And has since then kind of come back to them. It's so interesting you would say that she might push those away because I felt like in reading the book, and this might tie into the musical as well, yeah. where they talk about the struggle between good and evil and, you know, godliness versus whether the devil's even real, like that that sort of dichotomy. They talk a lot about that. So it's actually yeah. like life and art totally. working together in harmony 
for Anne Rice. And so the other thing about Anne Rice is that she's um, very solidly against fan fiction depictions of her Vampire Chronicles characters. But it's like wide open for that. It's wide open for that. It's an enormous universe she's created. Wow. Um, But she's very famously solidly against. She'll send um, like cease and desist orders to fan fiction websites who are publishing Vampire Chronicles fan fiction. Which makes any adaptation that she's involved with very fascinating. Right. And there's been... Very few. There's been Interview with the Vampire, the famous movie with um, Tom Mm -hmm. Cruise and Brad Pitt, which is probably the most well-known one. Yep. They adapted the sequel to Interview with the Vampire, which is Queen of the Damned, into Mm -hmm. a movie with with Aaliyah, with R&B singer Aaliyah. That's right. And, um, which is very sad. Yeah. Um, And that's a disaster movie. It's a very bad movie. (laughs) Didn't get around to that one. That's okay. And there's this musical... And I believe that's it as far as adaptations go, as far as sanctioned Anne Rice adaptations of her work. That makes a lot of sense. Right. And she did she did adapt the screenplays herself. I believe so. Yes. So that makes sense that she would be really, really specific about how everything was done. But, and I want, this is the reason I wanted to talk about Anne Rice now, because she is not involved in the creation of this musical mm-hmm. other than as a creative consultant. Right. She's not involved in the writing of the musical. She's not involved in the creation of the musical in any way other than as a nebulous creative consultant, which they mentioned several times in interviews and various things. I cannot wait until the end of this segment where we can talk about how she ended up feeling about it. Yes. (laughs) Well, before we do that, do you want to... Let's talk about Elton John and Bernie Taupin, the other big creative forces behind what is Lestat. The music. The music. And we'll talk about the music in the show in a second. But just for some context, just so everyone kind of has their head wrapped around where we're starting here. And me as well, because I've never heard any of what you're about to tell us. That's right. So I won't give a, I won't give a full breakdown of Elton John's career, um, because that's been done much better by many different people, including recently in the movie Rocket Man, Which was excellent. Which is an awesome movie and gives a really nice breakdown of Elton John and his longtime collaborator, Bernie Toppin's relationship. Mm-hmm. So where I want to start instead is in 1990. Um, up till this point, Elton John's been a rock star. He's um, been very famously a, uh, a drug addict, um, having a lot of trouble. In the very late 80s, he comes out as gay. Before this, um, this had only been rumor, this had been speculation. Mm-hmm. And this is important because this might not be how many of our viewers even think of Elton John in this, uh, in this day and age. Right. So he's been a pop star, mad, making mad songs, some of the most famous songs of all of the 20th century. Comes out as gay in the late 80s, goes to rehab in 1990, um, gets off uh, off the drugs that he's using. And in 1991, he's approached by Disney to consider writing the music for a uh, music feature, a musical feature that they are making called The Lion King. And this is weird at this point. This is a significant thing because Disney is just starting a renaissance period. They had been in the late, mm. in the mid to late 80s. Disney was a disaster as a company. They were almost bankrupt. They were just floundering. Wow. Did you say floundering because um, Little Mermaid happened in the late 80s? I said floundering because in the late 80s. Yes, I did. In the late 80s, a man named Michael Eisner takes over the company and leads it to a new era of unparalleled success, starting with 1988, The Little Mermaid, 1989. Which we shouted out on the last episode because it's my birth year. That's right. 1989's The Little Mermaid, where they have a powerful songwriting team. 
a then fairly unknown songwriting team of Alan Menken and Howard Ashman come and write the music. And it's a mad hit. It's a huge hit. They immediately sign on Menken and Ashman to do their next feature, Beauty and the Beast. This is right around the same time, early Mm -hmm. 90s, when they signed them on. And it's an even bigger hit. Unfortunately, Ashman dies um, about halfway through the production of that movie. Mm. Uh, It's very sad. I hope someday we get a chance to talk about Howard Ashman. We might not, though, because all of the musicals that he was involved (laughs) with are incredibly good and very successful. Um... (laughs) And Beauty and the Beast becomes the first animated movie to get nominated for Best Picture. Right. This is very exciting to Disney and to Michael Eisner. And they say, we're going to get that Best Picture nom mm-hmm. with this next movie, Pocahontas. And they hire on... Oh. This is history. This is what happened. Oh. And they got they get their team. They get... Um, Our favorite. Alan Menken. Alan Menken atta- they attach Alan Menken as a composer to yeah. that project. We're going to make this happen. It's going to be great. Stephen Schwartz, too. Stephen Schwartz to do the mm-hmm. lyrics. Yeah. Um, Funny, funny that. But also, they're going to produce kind of a, a B movie. Another oh, movie right okay. in that time period is also going to enter production in Disney. It's going to be not as good, but it might be a nice fun throwaway to make a few bucks. This is going to be The Lion King. And we're going to get <laughs> Elton John, who is a, at this point, a disgraced pop star. Isn't this fascinating? I wanted to be in the boardroom for these conversations. (laughs) I know, right? They're going to get Elton John, who is at this point a disgraced pop star, is the equivalent of, this is the equivalent of getting Randy Newman or something, or Phil Collins. Right. Which, of course, is something they actually did after too much, (laughs) um, much more limited success. Mm -hmm. Surprising everyone, Lion King friggin' slaps. And Pocahontas is a disaster. Yeah. Did I use that correctly, uh, Producer Daff? Friggin' slaps? Slaps. Was that, is that accurate? It's a total bop. It's a total <laughs> bop. It's a It's a an banger. absolute banger. Yeah. <laughs> Lion King is a surprise smash hit and Elton John's contributions are outstanding. Mm-hmm. They're great music. They're music that we has become part of our cultural consciousness. Whereas the Pocahontas music is fine at best. Mm-hmm. Fast forward now. This is the start of Elton John's new career as a musical theater songwriter. They want him to make a lion. They want, want him to write the music for Lion King 2. Right. He says, no thanks. I'm good. <laughs> Instead, I will help you adapt Lion King for the stage. They say, cool, we have a new stage division. We have, um, we just put Beauty and the Beast on stage. It did like moderately well, not incredible, but it, um, it made its money back. Mm-hmm. But Disney theatricals is a thing that we're just starting up now. Sure, you can help us put um, Lion King on the stage. They end up attaching Julie Taymor, the director, yes. to Lion King. And Lion King is incredibly successful in every capacity. Yeah. That's a pretty much unanimously agreed upon um, statement. It is also incredibly successful in the amount of uh, equity claim, insurance claims. That's true. I think um, it's probably the show with the most injuries. Didn't it cause equity to like change its entire health claim rule? Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's correct. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely it did. So from here, Elton John cannot be stopped. Um, Disney Theatricals gets him and uh, Tim Rice, his lyricist collaborator on Lion King, to write another musical called Aida. They write a contemporary rock musical out of that. Mm -hmm. It also does very well for itself. Mm -hmm. And this brings us to the early 2000s. And I had trouble nailing down the exact timeline here. Thank you for for your patience, everyone. I love, love, This brings us to the early 2000s when Elton John is approached to write two musicals. And at the same time, this is virtually exactly at the same time in the early 2000s. One is an adaptation of a movie that had come out a few years ago to mass critical acclaim called Billy Elliot. And the other one is an adaptation of Anne Rice's The Vampire Chronicles books, which he's going to write with his longtime creative collaborator, Bernie Taupin, who's written the lyrics for all of his pop songs. 
and has never written a musical before, but they've written some of the best pop songs of the 20th century together. Mm -hmm. Such as? Such your as song. Your Song, Candle in the Wind, mm -hmm. Tiny Dancer, Rocket Man. We love. Just incredible songs. Bangers. Be total bops, <laughs> some might say. We'll Someone... do it authentically one day. Oh, it's going to be great. One day when we're done making fun of it, it'll yeah. just be a part of us. Yeah, And absolutely. we won't have to make fun of saying banger anymore. So that brings us up to where we are now. Now everyone has the exact same context as we do for the environment that this musical is being created in. So what's gotta give? Well, it turns out Lestat is a huge <laughs> disaster. Lestat and Billy Elliot come out virtually at the exact same time on opposite ends of the pond. Billy Elliot just crushes it mm -hmm. in England on the West End and then transfers to Broadway and is a huge success there. Mm -hmm. And Lestat limps its way through a preview, preview period in San Francisco mm -hmm. that is a disaster. They make huge changes, transferred over to Broadway... And it's even worse. It's critically panned. It closes. And that's the end of Elton John's musical theater songwriting career. Is it really? Yep. Until as it stands right now. Oh my God. Yeah. I had no idea that was the end. So that's the stakes we're dealing with right now. Elton John's written four musicals. The last two he wrote virtually simultaneously, if we look at the timeline, mm -hmm. were Billy Elliot and Lestat. And Lestat was the end of it. Wow. So let's look at what went wrong. So let's talk about the music. <laughs> How do you like the music, Jill? Okay, so <laughs> I think it's pretty clear that we've both seen the Broadway bootleg. Correct. <laughs> yep. Um, from under someone's sweater. Yep. Of Did you watch the opening night on Broadway one? I think that's what it was. Absolutely. So this, <laughs> it was kind of tough to watch because this is opening night on Broadway. So you yeah. packed it with friends and family. And man, it is a lukewarm reception for an opening night. Yep. I'd be bummed if it was a Sunday afternoon, you know what I mean? <laughs> so the very first chords that strike, mm -hmm. I'm like, wait, I thought this was Lestat, not Les Mis. Yeah. Like there's this incredible 80s poppy yet classical mm. approach to this. And then I keep watching and I realize, oh no, they're fully mirroring like the plot of Les Mis and inserting their songs appropriately. Absolutely. So very soon after this epic overture and this fight moment, mm -hmm. it goes right into this I Dreamed a Dream song, but it's called something else and Carolee yeah. Carmelo sings it. And it's and just almost it. identical though to I Dreamed a Dream. Absolutely. So it feels very much through the whole musical, it feels very like, much like a ripoff of other stuff. Absolutely. I would agree with that completely. It feels like they are trying to take the formula that worked very well for Les Mis and less well but still successfully for something like Jekyll and Hyde mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and turning that, trying to appeal to that audience and that market specifically. Yes. Which is not a bad idea on its face. Um, yeah, I mean, if you can succeed at that, then, you know, you'll have a long-running show. Especially for something like The Vampire Chronicles. This is a, a epic, yes. far-reaching story. It's the story of one man. We've got a very prominent hero mm -hmm. they, they've named the show after him Lestat yeah um, I would maybe call him an anti-hero oh, he is very dark and gritty yeah yep I just don't like him no <laughs> <laughs> like would you call I would call Jekyll and Hyde an anti-hero an anti-hero yeah I don't think you could actually call Lestat would also, you would you call Jean Valjean an anti-hero no, no I he's wouldn't he's a straight up hero but also okay yeah. this is maybe more to my argument of like 
was the character just unlikable? Right. Like, were the are these people, are these vampires just unlikable people? That doesn't necessarily mean anti-hero versus hero. Okay, to bring it back to the music, though, we'll get to, we will get to that. Song for song, how is it for you? Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're great. I agree completely. Elton John writes up writes a friggin' banger. Also, welcome to the new world. Oh, great song. This is the top of Act 2 when um, Lestat gets to New Orleans and everyone sings around him. Oh, it is great. It's the most Elton John-y of all the music, I would say. Absolutely. There's that and there's um, Embrace It, Embrace It, which is like right after that. Yeah. That's Armand and... Armand and Lestat. Lestat, I think. And that's, that, that, that also struck me as very Elton Johnny. Yeah. But then other times it was like boring and sad. Boring is what comes to mind. <laughs> Elton John writes an incredible pop ballad and he writes an incredible anthem. Mm-hmm. Look at, written at the exact same time, Billy Elliot, which has both some of the best pop ballads he's ever written mm-hmm. in something like Electricity yep. and some of the best anthems he's ever written in all the songs that the miners sing. It's true. And virtually none of that is evidenced here. Maybe Come Sail Away or whatever it is, Sail Me Away. Oh, yeah. It's put in the position to be like electricity or Can You Feel the Love Tonight. Yes. And maybe it has the potential with a few more rewrites, but this feels unfinished and boring. Unfinished and boring is good. A good way to put it. The singers all really (laughs) were very good, though. Oh, I wonder if someone who is like mediocre sang this. Then it might expose even more than we realize. Especially freaking Carly Carmelo. Right. Just nails it to the back of the wall. I cannot find fault with her even in this. Yeah. Just incredible. The only thing I'll say is that the way they all say the word kiss really bothers me. I didn't notice that. Crimson keys. That's right. (laughs) She sings a whole song that's about the crimson keys. Like vampires. That's how they would say it. Crimson (laughs) keys. Oh, that's right. The other thing is everyone in this musical is the count. It's a very bizarre choice. (laughs) One performance, two performance. Uh, 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 uh. That's it. Wow, we're really good at impersonating the count. Do we? Do we want to? Do you want to rate the music, or do you want to include the lyrics? Let's in talk it? quickly about the lyrics. I actually yep. don't have a ton to say about them. Interesting. I I think just because I wasn't really listening. Yeah, fair. <laughs> I think that the lyrics are one of the biggest problems with this show. Ooh, tell me why. Because I think that Bernie Taupin is in over his head in a new genre. Bernie Taupin's one of my favorite lyricists mm-hmm. of all time. If Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's, one of my favorite Elton John songs, was in a musical, mm-hmm. I think it would be the best song in that musical. Mm. No question. Like as an 11 o'clock number. Right. That said, I think he's in over his head. I read some interviews where he talks about how he really, he specifically did not want this to be a rock opera. Oh. He wanted this to function as a musical. And what I've taken from that is that Rather than having it be this sung through Les Mis thing, it's very much these episodic songs. Mm. Anytime he has to explain any kind of exposition through these songs, it ends up feeling very clunky. Yes. The choruses all sing. They sing great. Mm -hmm. They're Elton John and Bernie Taupin at their best. Mm -hmm. But anytime any of the songs have to function as musical theater pieces, it's clunky and it falls apart. Right. So... Getting a person's story from A to B through the song isn't happening. It's a disaster. Right. Unless it's something like Come Sail Me Away Right Now, mm-hmm. um, which, as we discussed, <laughs> could use a few more workshops, but as the 11 o'clock number yeah. does get Lestat from A to B. Right. So just more of that would have been super helpful. More of that <laughs> or bring on another lyricist who can help mm. him wrap his head around 
how to write um, how to write narrative as well as he writes yeah. emotional journey. Right, because and that's really what musical theater is about. Especially a musical like this, where there's so much plot and there's so much happening, mm-hmm. you really need the lyrics to take you from point A to point B. Yeah, yeah. Almost physically, you need to move the characters from one location to another location mm-hmm. a lot of the time. So what I'm hearing is more music. Yes. But less bad music. That's that if I <laughs> if I could give a note, that would be my note. So we want it sung through, yes. but good. Correct. <laughs> I will take my seventy-five thousand dollars as yeah. musical consultant now. Consultant. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually I agree. I think it should have been sung through. Give me some recitative. Absolutely. That's what we're all here for. Lamez does this so well. Yes. Um, I'll talk for days about the pros and cons of Lame Is, but there's no question it's an incredibly effective piece. Mm-hmm. And the thing it does so well is moves us from point A to point B, and then we get to stop and go on an emotional journey. And then we're back to actual physical journeys yes, through space and time. Absolutely. So out of 10 playbills, yeah. how many monkeys are you giving the music and lyrics? Three. Oh, wow. It's really bad. Oh, I don't like Paul. it one bit. Um, I'm disappointed. I love all of Elton John's other musicals, especially Billy Elliot and The Lion King. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Elton John, you're better than this. Bernie Taupin, you're better than this. <laughs> Do better. <laughs> Except for um, Welcome to the New World, No Notes, excellent work. Yeah, No Notes. Yep. More of that. <laughs> More of that. What about you? I actually wasn't thinking it was that bad. Oh. I thought maybe four and a half or five for sure. This is so interesting because this is what I identified as the main problem with the show. So I'm interested to oh, get into this. Oh, no. We've got more. We've got more problems. Great. Okay. Way more. Great. So you give it a four or five. Four and a half or five, but maybe let's stay four and a half because I'm going to deduct a half point for Crimson Keys. <laughs> but then also add a half point for Carolee Carmelo selling Crimson selling Keys. Selling it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited to go on the rest of this journey then because we... Definitely, our heads are not in the same place, even though we both hated it. Let's talk about the book. Let's talk about the book. The book was written by a woman named Linda Wolverton, which is a really funny coincidence because at the beginning of the play, we see a bunch of Wolvertons. (laughs) Is it a coincidence or is it on purpose? Is the question. Maybe it's in her rider. Yes. So in the last few episodes, we've been talking about yep. certain things that are conditional to a person's participation totally. from a creative perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Linda Wolverton's is yeah. that there must be wolves in, in the shows that she writes because... What else did she write, Paul? I was going to say this tracks because she also wrote Beauty and the Beast, which features wolves very prominently, mm-hmm. and also co-wrote Lion King, which features hyenas, hyenas. which are nothing but laughing wolves, as we know. <laughs> If you Google hyenas, yeah. it just says nothing but laughing wolves. <laughs> you heard it right here, folks. The point of all this is Linda Wolverton's actually a very accomplished writer and has written some real nice things. Mm-hmm. But we're learning that on this musical, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you've done. Because something disastrous happened. Something, something went happened. terribly wrong. That even incredible artists like Bernie Taupin and Elton John and Linda Wolverton were not able to pull out anything good. They couldn't resuscitate this. They couldn't turn this into an immortal vampire. What I'm hearing is you did not like the book. I actually, in the same way that I just sort of stopped listening to the music, I also, it is a fact that I did not listen to this. Absolutely. This scene work. It's hard to listen to. And it's long. (sighs) 
We could have sung it, honestly. Absolutely. Put it to music. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of scene work, and it's, I think, a big challenge that Linda Wolverton was facing was that she had to adapt a lot of material and get us through a lot of material Mm -hmm. in uh, two and a half hours or three hours. Exactly. Also, possibly with the novelist breathing down your neck. As a creative consultant. Right? Absolutely. So, so you know, who's to say what she really had ownership of? Absolutely. Whereas with the other projects she's worked on, she's adapted her own scripts. It seems that, it seems that way, absolutely. So, yeah, just snooze fest. Yep, snooze fest, nothing stands out. Yeah. And I had a hard time listening to it. Totally. Nothing's a disaster. Nothing made me laugh. So, yeah. there's that. I want to read some quotes from the New York Times review. So our friend... Friend of the podcast, (laughs) Ben Brantley. Oh, Ben. He wrote, I think my most favorite opening paragraph ever for any review. Mm -hmm. And I've read fringe reviews, okay? And this one takes the cake. It's magical. On April 26, 2006, he writes this. A promising new contender has arrived in a crowded pharmaceutical field, joining the ranks of Ambien, Lunesta, Sonata, and other prescription lullaby drugs is Lestat, the musical sleeping pill that opened last night at the Palace Theater. (laughs) (laughs) Musical sleeping pill. And because he's reviewing opening night, he saw the same production that we did. He saw the (laughs) The same same production the same night that we all saw. Oh, wow. Scathing. Yeah. Shady. Yeah. I love it. And that's across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as reviews go, we're going to talk a little more about all the reviews when we get into the production as a whole. Yes. But that's uh, that sums it up in a very effective yeah. way. Especially with the book and especially with the music and lyrics, like yeah. you were saying. Boring, confusing. I didn't know what was going on. I had to kind of look back on synopses of the books to be like, right. who who is this person? Wait, who's the other vampire? Is that the Brad Pitt vampire? And worse no, than that, else. you really don't understand what what they're working toward. What's the conflict? Yeah. In this musical, <laughs> Lestat's sad. Yeah. At one point, the Kristen Dunst vampire gets killed. I guess. I guess. It's supposed to be the emotional climax of the piece that the vampire who is the ba- vampire who's played by a young Kristen Dunst in yeah. the famous movie. And that happens in the movie as well, doesn't it? She yep, gets killed. It yeah, does. totally. Yeah. Totally. I remember being upset about it in the movie. Yeah, it is pretty upsetting yeah. in, the, in the movie. It's kind of goofy here. And it, it was really the emotional was climax. Hokey. Yeah. For the book, out of 10 playbills, mm-hmm. how many monkeys would you give this book? Three. I'm a little more generous than you because I didn't actively laugh like I did at some of the music. Oh, okay. So I would say four. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Which well, is generous. Well, then I, I guess together, three and a half. There you go. Minus That's... a half point. For Crimson Keys. <laughs> Minus a half point because I had no idea what was going on the whole time. Yeah, because we fell asleep on yes. this new musical sleeping pill. <laughs> Let's talk about the direction and choreography. This is a, as good a time as any to talk about the two productions this show had. And we'll talk about this more when we talk about the production in general. Mm-hmm. Because as we talk about the direction and choreography, we have to talk about this show had an extensive preview process in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. After which the show in San Francisco was panned. It was just destroyed. But Anne Rice will be the first to post on her website that it grossed $1.4 million. So Great. there. Good for good for them. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> that's, that's not what we're talking about here. They made mad, mad changes between San Francisco and Broadway to try to save this show. Yes. Obviously, it didn't work. And one of the changes they made was they brought on a choreographer, mm-hmm. which didn't even exist. The position didn't exist before. Which is such a mistake. 
because I think that any any play should have someone who knows movement. Yeah. Even a pl- like a play needs it too. Absolutely. For and if transitions. If the director is comfortable filling that role as well, yes. great. Go with God. But the fact that you would have a musical that's set to go to Broadway mm-hmm. and no one there to tell you where to put your hands. How to like, move your body within <laughs> move this music. Move your body. What do I do with it? Like, we, we have a problem. Absolutely. Millie, get your head out of that bag. <laughs> oh, no. That's not for cats. Millie? Come on. Millie, come on. She's like, oh, I love it in yeah, there. Okay. <clears throat> so who's on the creative team? So this production was directed by Robert Jess Roth, mm-hmm. director of Beauty and the Beast, 1994 to 2007. There you go. Okay. And that's it. Okay. Well, also every tour of Beauty and the Beast ever. Yeah, good for good for him, man. Make that money. Yeah, there's nothing wrong Ride with that. that wave. Absolutely. What do you have to say about the direction? The direction for the production that we saw, yes, seems bland and uninteresting. Mm-hmm. I don't see any characters plumb any sorts of real emotional depths mm-hmm. for a story that is based almost entirely in emotional depths. Because as we discussed, there's no conflict other right. than emotional conflict. The question is: Is that symptomatic of? the direction, or just of the story as a whole. And I think we're seeing multiple levels of that through all of the productions we've been talking about, is that it? it's always something else. But we yep. do end up going in a circle that way. Yep. So someone has to step up <laughs> their game, you know? Staging, didn't like it. Boring staging, nothing exciting. Emotional depths and emotional journeys traveled by the characters, nothing to write home about. Adequate. Totally. What yes. about the choreography? Matt West was in a chorus line from 1975 to 1990. Oh, is that the original cast? E- yeah. I think so. And then also did Beauty and the Beast. At what point were they like, this show is going to be the next Beauty and the Beast? That must have crossed their minds. That's so bizarre. They have so many Beauty and the Beast team members. Maybe they just thought stylistically they're looking at a similar thing. So they're like, let's just invite the gang. We know how to do this. Elton John's got a significant relationship with Disney up till this point as well. Mm-hmm. Is he pulling from that uh, from that well for that reason? Right. I don't know. So Matt West's movement. Yep. Really uninspired. Really simplistic. Which isn't a bad thing, I would say. But here it might be. Mm-hmm. Because you can actually do a lot with any of those transformation moments. Jeez, right? There's a transformation in Beauty and the Beast. Absolutely, there is. Come on. It's a famous you transformation. Know what to it's do. incredible. <laughs> but they just don't do it. They could have really pulled pulled out all the stops from a production perspective. So I think the staging and the direction, they're just all, I hate to say this, design problems. Yeah, okay. So let's rate it and let's go on to the design because I agree. Great. So, for the direction and choreography, out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys are you giving it? I'm going to give it four. Mm-hmm. I'm adding one to my desired ranking out of sympathy because I feel like I've been that creative team member on a show like this. Where I'm like, oh, I tried my best. There it is. <laughs> I'm going to go get a drink now. Yes. How about you? I would give it a f- five. Fair enough. Mm. That's a generous, that's a generous ranking. Great. Sure. Nice. Good for you. Five. Yep. Good job, y'all. You did what you did what you had to do. None of it's bad. Yeah. You put a thing on the stage and people came to see it. And it's a good thing they did because there's not much else on this stage. Let's talk about the sets. There aren't any. 
End of discussion. <laughs> who did these these invisible sets, Paul? Oh, who was it? Okay, scenic design by. What if I give all of the people who contributed design um, from a design perspective right now? Scenic design by Derek McLance. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike, I wrote, unlike so many associated with this project, he has done so much since. Ragtime <laughs> Revival, which I actually got to see with friend of the podcast, Ryan Siegel. Which is also really minimalistic. Joseph Tritt. Yes, very. Mm-hmm. And it worked really nicely. Totally. Uh, How to Succeed Revival, Anything Goes. Lots of these big, Those are nice revivals. gorgeous yeah. productions. Okay, so that's Derek McLance. Costume design by Susan Hilferty. Uh, we have lighting design by Kenneth Posner. Many credits, including Beetlejuice, uh, Pretty Woman, ugh, Mean Girls. Mm, great. Tons. Sound design by Jonathan Deans, Jagged Little Pill, Finding Neverland. Totally. Yeah. As always, the sound design is probably the one we're least qualified to be able to talk about on this podcast because we aren't able to receive it. We I'm were sure not there. Visual concept designer, mm-hmm. Dave McKean. Makeup, no, sorry, hair and wig design, Tom Watson. Thank you for your work, I wrote. Makeup design by Angelina Avalon, who did Tootsie and Bullets Over Broadway. Oh, cool. Yeah, so lots of seasoned, talented, and hardworking folks in this bunch. So like I mentioned, this show had an extensive preview process in San Francisco. And the show in San Francisco was very different from the show that made it to Broadway, particularly from a design point of view. Mm. Also, actually, you know, from an almost everything point of view, from what I understand, (laughs) a musical arrangement point of view, Mm. a script point of view, but especially a design point of view. The San Francisco version of this had more elaborate sets and relied very heavily on projection. Oh. So I've seen clips of it. Costumes are cooler. There, It's a more kind of, it's got a very striking design. It's Mm -hmm. kind of this, um, like, Victorian era... Like they all look like Victorian era ghosts or something. Cool. It's very fascinating, especially when they get to New Orleans. So it's gothic? It's very gothic. I love that. Absolutely. There's a what lot happened? to love. What happened? Why did they make that change? From what, based on the research I've done, based on the things that I've read, mm-hmm. it got poor reviews in San Francisco and they tore the show apart and tried to put it back together. Oh, gee. It's like they couldn't identify what the problem was. Right. So they... <laughs> Went at it with a bazooka and right. tore it apart from every level. They're like, everything goes. And what they put back on stage is a bland mess. I agree so deeply yeah. with that. So my issues with the staging, choreography, blocking mm. all of it could have probably been solved by some levels. Absolutely. Some permanent scaffolding. Give me just yeah. some scaffolding. And then you can have all the stuff you want on wheels that you had. Really? Because that's it. They have these little pieces on wheels and they have a trap. That moves up and down. Yeah. And they've got real fire. The trap is there. The fire, I think, is great. They got real fire. More fire in more shows, please. That sound you heard was every (laughs) stage manager ever developing like a pain in the side of their neck because (laughs) of that comment. Like, stop talking about our insurance (laughs) right now. And then calling for more fire. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I just think we could have used something more permanent to climb on. Yeah. Why didn't the vampires fly? There's this whole thing in the books and in the in the movies where they talk about how quickly the vampires can move. If only there was a way that big budget musicals could make actors fly. If only we had if innovated only... something like that by this point. Oh, gosh, I can't wait to see a show where they do something cool like if that. If they ever make an adaptation of Peter Pan, that's what they'll do. Oh, they should definitely, they should definitely do that make someday. a stage yep. version of that. 
It's so empty. The whole stage is yep. big. Barren. And empty. It's like they said, the projections are the problem. we got to cut the projections. <laughs> but what are we going to replace it with? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, uh, just pipe and drape. Yeah. <laughs> So I will, I do want to give a shout out to the wig uh, people because there's a moment where Carolee Carmelo, who plays Lestat's mother, cuts her hair on stage. that's right, yeah. And I'm like, that is cool. That is cool. She probably doesn't for real, but however they did it looked wonderfully realistic to me from (gasps) someone's camcorder. Can can we go back on, she probably doesn't for real? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm, I can't be sure, but I don't I think she sure, actually I, cut her hair on I opening night. I don't think they cut her $300 wig every night. Like, I don't think they would do that. But I don't know. On Drag Race, they pull out some gimmicks like that. A queen will risk it all. You're right. So she probably didn't cut her hair, but we can't be sure. Yeah, we can't be sure. There's no way of knowing, based on the context we've collected here, whether she cut her hair or not. So I've got to give it a seven or eight out of ten. Ooh, is that your is that your rating then for no, the wigs? Please no, okay. I'd rather not. So now that we've that. discussed the sets and costumes, yeah. out of ten playbills, how many monkeys do you give the design? This is tough because it's honestly like a three, because um, there's right. nothing. But I don't think that's their fault. Right. I think that I give it like a seven based on what I saw in San Francisco. Okay. And then clearly. Someone, and I'm not, this is coming into the, what is the greater problem with this? Mm -hmm. Someone, and I'm not, I can't know this for sure. This is wild speculation, but some powers that be who are near the top and their names might rhyme with bland mice (laughs) identified 10 million problems that weren't actually problems and went went at them with a bazooka rather than what the preview, the out of town tryout process should actually be, which is identifying the major problems and fixing those before you get to New York. Correct. Also worth noting is that this is one of the first shows, as we discussed, that started to exist in the internet information era. Mm-hmm. So this was just when the out-of-town tryout process was starting to become obsolete. You used to use out-of-town yes. tryouts because the reviews wouldn't reach New York. So you could make a bunch of mistakes out of town and then get to New York with those mis- mistakes fixed. Right. But now those reviews were much more wildly available all over. So by the time the show got to Broadway, everyone was already ready for this is a huge disaster. So that's an that's another thing that I think makes this show significant in the Less Than 100 Performances Club. I think it's one of the first shows where the out-of-town tryout was not useful because of the internet. Mm, that's an interesting thing to yeah. think about. That'd be my bet. And exciting to think about. Right. The information age impacting theater in yeah. such a immediate way. Right. Isn't that fascinating? So you gave it three, you said, for design? No, I gave it four. Three is the actual rating, and then an added an added uh, monkey for the San Francisco version. Oh, okay, yeah. that's nice. What about you? I'm going to give it a two. Yeah, I don't blame you. Mainly because I didn't see any images from the San Francisco, so yeah. I don't want to. But maybe I'll add a point for the wig trick that I liked. <laughs> the oh, mystery and maybe wig a trick. half point for the fire. <laughs> So what is that? 3.5. Okay. I'll, that's where we'll land. Fair enough. All right. I like a lot of performances in this. Carolee Carmelo, first of all. Huge fan. Destroys it left and right. Yes. Great. 
Fantastic. The wig. I'm just kidding. That's the last <laughs> wig thing. Her voice is really incredible. Absolutely. They, I mean, all of their voices are really, yeah. really beautiful. Carly Carmelo's got one is one of the best living singers alive today. I'll yes. say that again and again. Yep. Absolutely. So she plays Gabrielle. Yep. Who is Lestat's mother. That's correct. You know who else has a great voice and I really enjoy is young Allison Fisher as Claudia. Yeah. She plays the Kristen Dunst vampire. Very nice. Yep. Nice and bratty. On a killer voice, looks her up. She didn't really do much Broadway after this. Correct. She turns in a fun performance here. She's got one of the best bops in the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, real, really kills it. Yeah. I like the actor who plays Armand. Drew Sarich. Big fan of his sound. Yeah, He's got I a agree. nice clean tenor sound mm-hmm. that I love. You know who else has a has an incredible voice is Hugh Pinero, who plays the lead, who yes! plays Lestat. Just love. a big old voice. He's a phantom man in that he played phantom before this and went on to continue to do phantom after this. He's got a great <laughs> voice. I'd love to hear him sing phantom. He probably sings yeah. the shit out of it. Yeah, truly. How do you like him in this? I think he does what he needs to with this material. Absolutely. He handles the stamina part of it very well. Yep. You know, it takes a lot of ability to yeah. sing this. Mm-hmm. And he does a great job. I agree. I I found a funny quote from that New York Times article where yeah. it talks about the character of Armand being a, quote, sustained hissy fit. Uh, <laughs> accurate. Which I really love. Yeah. Um, and I kind of feel like all these characters are sort of their own version of a sustained hissy fit. Absolutely. It's got a, it's a special kind of thing where there is a show with a bratty teenage girl <laughs> vampire in it. And your character is the one that's the sustained hissy fit. I know. <laughs> I look at her and I'm like, she's not so bad. I don't take issue with any performance here. No. Nice performances. People doing good work. Good for you guys. Well done, performers. Absolutely. So out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys do we give the performances? Uh, seven, and then nine for Carolee Carmelo, who's a standout. I would say also a seven. I give a nine to Carolee Carmelo, but it's an eight plus the wig, so. <laughs> <laughs> she also gets some credit for the wig trick. <sighs> So, Paul, the big question that we've yep. been asking for the last few episodes Absolutely. that really encompasses everything we've just talked about is, should Lestat have been a musical? Absolutely, it should have. I feel strongly that it is a story that is suited to a musical. I think that vampires do have a place in the musical theater canon. They just haven't found it yet. Well, this is actually the third attempt at vampires in, like, Five a few years, years so. yep. surrounding mm-hmm. 2006. It was Kiss of the Va- Dance of the Vampire. Dance. Crimson Kiss, Kiss of the Vampire, (laughs) and then Frank Wildhorn's Dracula. I think that the story is well suited to it. I think that the sweeping, expansive, epic musical Mm -hmm. could have really suited this well. It just was poorly executed on every level. What about you? I actually agree. Even though I don't like vampires, I don't like fantasy, I want real, give me reality. That's why I love... (laughs) Shows where people sing and dance and know all the same choreography because that's so real. Because <laughs> it is accurate to your life experience. <laughs> I tend to, yeah, I tend to stay away from fantasy. But I think had this been executed properly, it actually could have been really epic and amazing to witness. I agree. Like a lame is. Yep. That's, I think that was their hope. And I'm disappointed that it didn't come anywhere close. It missed on almost every level. Yeah. So this did not get shut out at the Tonys. Did not. Which is... Cool for uh, productions that we've seen on this podcast. Mm-hmm. It got two. We just two nominations. 
Um, one for our girl, Carolee Carmelo. Yeah, well-deserved. Well-deserved. And what was the other one? Best costume design. It was in a really cool year. This is the year that the Drowsy Chaperone was crushing it left and right. Yes. Which is very fascinating to see. This is also the first Color Purple uh, production that was notably very overblown and wasn't received very well, even mm-hmm. though the musical itself is very good, yep. as we would later see with the revival. Correct. And this is the year that Jersey Boys won. Oh, Jersey Boys. And changed everything. Honestly, I think what I'm noticing is the higher that the men sing in the show, the more Tonys that they're nominated for. So maybe that's the problem is that Hugh Panero does not sing high enough exactly. in this show. Okay. For long enough. Totally. That makes sense. Yeah. We only get glimpses into the F and F sharp world. So yay for them for getting at least two. Yep. Didn't Take help them it. at all. I think they were already closed by that point. That's correct. They had already closed at the end of May and Tonys are first week of June usually. Yeah. So so it didn't do, a, didn't do a thing for them. But that's okay. Yeah. They still got it. So Jill, we all know this didn't do very well for itself. Mm-hmm. If you had to pick one out of three categories just off the top of my head, would it be a, a flop? Is this a total bop? Or do you have to make it stop? Flop. Okay. Show your work. I think it's a flop because if I'm hearing what you're saying about the San Francisco production, mm-hmm. some of the things, if they would have just gone for it, I think it could have actually just been a bop. So So do you think that we need to revisit Lestat as a creative community? Sure. There we go. How okay. fun. Okay. <laughs> Great. Wouldn't it be fun? Yeah, it would be fun. With the right team, you okay. could do a lot with this. All right. You could maybe try to make sense of some of the things that don't make sense. I was all set to pick Make It Stop, but I am, um, you convinced me otherwise. You've inspired me. Ooh. We need more of that optimism in our life right now. Yeah, we do. So anyone, if you would like to revive Lestat the Musical, if you would like to talk to Elton John and get the rights, Jillian Willems and I are ready and able. We've done a lot of research into it and we would love to flop, but with a lot of potential. Yeah, that's what I think. I'd like to think about it like that. Absolutely. Also because... I'm, my feelings about vampires are slowly turning. Right. Like a, so, as a if you've way. been bitten by a vampire. I've been You're bitten. slowly turning. I'm slowly yes. turning. <laughs> I am Brad Pitt. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, in conclusion, I'd like, I think we should share both of our final thoughts, but we should also share the thoughts of friend of the podcast, Anne Rice. Yes. And if you've forgotten who she is, she wrote the books. And was the creative consultant on this. Whatever that means. I have, as we've expressed, we think it meant a lot. What did Anne Rice have to say? So on her blog, which is attached to her website, she there's an entry from April 30th, 2006. So five days after opening, she writes, I'm overjoyed to report that I was there on opening night, stunned and amazed, and I'm eager to tell you just exactly what I saw. What did you see, Anne? Tell us what you saw. Anyway, so she goes on to... To talk about, weirdly, she's like being humble. She's like, well, I didn't write the character of Lestat. He came to me or whatever. You know, it's fine. Live your dream. Yes, he was based on my husband's Dan. Like, just weird. <laughs> it's really strange. Doesn't talk much about the production. Then then later, <laughs> then later she goes on to talk about... Um, some of the things that she likes. I knew that instantly the production was a triumph. Yeah, that's what she said. And to the and to the final curtain, it never let me down. Oh, Anne, what did you see? What production was this? Oh, anyway, she loved it. 
She loved it. <laughs> she absolutely loved her own production. And I don't know. Do you have any final thoughts, Jill? I agree with Anne. I was going to no, say, I'm I don't... <laughs> I, I don't think... Who am I to take that away from I Anne know, Rice? But that's the thing. Like, really, who is it for? Who I is think, this production for? I think it's for Anne Rice. It's for her <laughs> and all her fans. Much like last week's discussion. Yeah. I think it's kind of that same thing. There's a very clear yeah. following... Yeah. A very clear audience that yeah. they're, you know, trying to bring in. Yeah. And maybe I'm just not it, but that's okay. But if you're not it, neither is the general Broadway going public. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's why it just didn't work. My final thought, and this is, I'm actually surprised they didn't do this. I think they should have attached the interview with the vampire name to it. I think that's the only potential it would have had for commercial success. Yeah. I don't think enough people recognize Lestat as a character. Mm-hmm. I don't think the Vampire the Vampire Chronicles is a wildly popular series, but I don't know if it's that popular. Mm-hmm. For people to just, on a whim, be like, oh yeah, that's exactly what I want to see. Whereas maybe, <laughs> maybe if it had Interview with the Vampire attached to it, mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form, it might have at least limped out a year. That's a great it was point. was this quality. I have one more thing, actually. A long time ago, like maybe seven years, eight years ago, I went to Las Vegas, but we stayed at Planet Hollywood. Great. And our room was themed Interview with the Vampire. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it was weird. So like it was like a weird Victorian era New Orleans? No, it like had every room at Planet Hollywood is like the same, but they just put pictures of the movies on the walls. (laughs) (laughs) So you just had pictures of Vampire, Brad Pitt, Pitt and and Tom Cruise. And and Kirsten Kirsten Dunst. Just around (laughs) while you're sleeping. That's the funniest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, anyway, that's my only connection really to it. I thought you'd all enjoy that. I think that's incredible. (laughs) Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. That helps us a ton. So much. Tell people who you think might enjoy this podcast to listen to it. That's the biggest way you can help us right now. Leave comments. Talk to us. We're very interested in hearing what you would like us to talk about. Yeah. Thank you for for being here for us for these three episodes. Absolutely. So next episode. It's very exciting. We're going to take a look at 1997's Sideshow. I am so excited about this. I cannot wait. Yeah. If you're not familiar with it, you will be. It's a wild ride. Here we go. Get ready. Get ready. Strap in and join us next time. Bye. Hi, everyone. This is producer Daphne speaking. Thank you all so much for joining us for Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. If you have a show that you'd like us to cover, you can get in touch with us at monkeysandplaybillspod on Instagram or by emailing monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. Original music for the show is provided by Paul DeGers, and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. Thank you all so much for listening, and join us next week where we take on Sideshow.